Thank you so much, Jake, for joining me today. Really excited to talk about your journey in life, man, everything you've done up to up to this point and everything you're you're gonna do. But before we we kind of get into groundswell, kind of take us take us a little bit back through through your journey. I know you've talked about it through your book and a bunch of the interviews you've done and, and all the speaking stuff you've done. But talk us through maybe before Team Rubicon uh, with the Marines and, and then we'll we'll sort of get into groundswell and, and sort of becoming a, a startup founder. Yeah, sure. Uh, well thanks for having me on. Uh, glad to be here joining you. Yeah, I I, I definitely have a non-typical journey toward being a software CEO and, and, and startup founder. I guess my, you know, I, I kind of always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Not quite sure I took the straight and narrow path to, to, to getting there. I, I ended up joining the Marine Corps after college, decided to enlist back in 2005. And, you know, that was a kind of an interesting decision, obviously a very consequential decision since we were in wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, ended up serving for four years in the Marine Corps, uh, mostly uh, over, you know, did most of my time overseas, spent my first tour in Iraq as part of a, an infantry rifle squad um, running counterinsurgency operations there and then later joined a, a scout sniper unit and served in Afghanistan as part of a, a six-man scout sniper team. And you know, I, <laughs> looking backwards, I often tell people that that's actually where I learned how to be an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> you, know, you think about what it takes to, to run and build a company. It's, you know, it's how, do you, how do you persist and overcome challenges? How do you navigate uncertainty and ambiguity? How do you do more with less, you know, when you when you hmm. face yeah. you're facing limited resources and limited information. And, you know, certainly didn't learn how to read financial statements or or pitch a, a venture capitalist, but learned how to overcome all those other things. And so ended up getting out of the Marine Corps in late 2009. And, the, you know, I kind of thought, you know, my time doing the crazy stuff was over. I figured I'd go back to, to graduate school, get my MBA. You know, the economy was in the tank after the Great Recession. So job prospects weren't looking great leaving the Marines. And I, I got accepted to, to graduate school to go to UCLA. But uh, before the, year, the school year started, you know, this is still nine months away. Um, I, I was watching the news and the Haiti earthquake happened. And so yeah. having just gotten out of the Marine, the Marines and, and gotten back from a couple of hard tours, I was watching that horrible disaster unfold. And for those of the, you know, your listeners that don't remember, this is 2010 and, uh, you know, they estimate about 150,000 people died instantly in that, in that earthquake, which is just a, you know, gobstopping number. Yeah. You can't even comprehend it really. You you it's can't. Crazy. And yeah, and they and they say about another hundred thousand people would die in the coming months. And so, you know, watching all of that, I just felt compelled to help in some way beyond just texting, you know, ten dollars to the Red Cross like everybody else was. And so um ended up working with a couple of other veterans and and some doctors. We organized a team and, and we went down to Port au Prince right after the earthquake and just started working and and in doing that, you know, we're talking just days after the earthquake. So we're down there in the thick of it. It's it's it was honestly it was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. But we we just started to realize that the experiences that we had as military veterans, particularly overseas, made us really adept at navigating the the chaos of that post disaster situation. And so we came back from Haiti after a couple of weeks and decided to form a nonprofit organization that we call Team Rubicon with that simple premise being that we could build a, a best in class disaster response organization by recruiting men and women uh, who had served in the military to repurpose their skills and experience for humanitarian work. And so, man, it's been 13 years. You know, the organization has scaled from those original eight volunteers to uh, a global organization that counts over 160,000 volunteers on its rosters. And 
you know, operates a $75 million annual budget, which is just, um, I mean, unbelievable to think about. And I I can't say it was an easy journey. I mean, full of ups and downs, all of the the classic entrepreneurial stories of, you know, near-death experiences for the company. But, um, you know, the organization is is doing incredibly well. I I would put us up uh, against any organization on the planet in terms of the efficacy of our programs and the impact that we're driving communities across the country and around the world. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Like just, I mean, I've known Team Rubicon for years and years. You know, I remember just, you know, watching some of the work and, you know, reading a lot of stuff that done. And I think it was after, I think it was actually, it was after the Haiti earthquake because I had went to Haiti as well after that. And I remember reading about Team Rubicon sort of being, you know, being there and sort of kind of doing that, that work that is, you know, incredibly, incredibly difficult, you know, because you see such destruction, life loss at the same time. It's, it's so overwhelming and it's, it's, it's gotta be emotionally draining also physically, right? There's sort of combination of, of both of those things when you're on the ground, like right after it happens. It's so from friends deal with that sort of similar thing after Hurricane Katrina, having some cops, Mm -hmm. having some friends who are firefighters, you know, kind of, you know, talking to them through the pro, you know, when they were down there, kind of similar. It was just like the destruction is all, it, it's just, it, it lets your jaw drop a little bit, but it's also like trying to still save lives, right? And people, you know, still dying, like in front of you, it's such a, it's such a transformational experience in, in a lot of different ways on so many different sides. But I guess when you come out of that, right, and, and sort of, you know, sticking with sort of building a nonprofit, right, and, and kind of that mindset of, let's say, you know, working on it for a decade, you know, what are some of the the things that, that you've learned throughout that sort of decade, let's say, in you know, the nonprofit, like you said, you were going to go to your MBA, you were really focused on business, right? Now you're all, all of a sudden kind of in this nonprofit world, right? Which is, which is different and similar in some ways, but I guess, what did you come away from that experience being in the nonprofit world? Perhaps like, you know, what can be done better and, and what are some of the really positive, you know, things you take from, from, from your work there? I think one of the biggest ones is, you know, this, this sense that the nonprofit space is fundamentally different than the corporate space. And I, I think that one of the things that we did early at Team Rubicon is we tried to run Team Team Rubicon like any you know like any startup. You know, we tr- we had to be ruthlessly efficient. We had to um, grow res- you know responsibly. We had to manage budgets and execute programs and and ultimately deliver a world class product. You know, our our product right, isn't right. you know it's not like Apple. We're not shipping iPhones. We're not building anything in the physical world. And, and in in many regards, we're not even delivering services in the traditional sense of like a white collar professional services firm. But nonetheless, we had a product. It was helping people after disasters. And, you know, we had to we had to build a world class product. We had to market it. We had to sell it to donors and we had to deliver it consistently and professionally. And so, you know, I think that the biggest fallacy or trap that people fall into is thinking that, oh, well, nonprofits need to operate differently than for-profits. And yeah, I mean, there are some nuances, but at the end of the day, if you are not taking this as a serious business enterprise, you have no business running mm-hmm. a nonprofit, I would not invest my charitable dollars with you if you just saw it as a, kind of a mom and pop feel good mm-hmm. thing. You need to you need to approach it, you know, like you're going to build a world-class Fortune 500 company. So I think we tried to do that early. We paid attention to things like you know, building up a brand that could attract strong corporate sponsorships and and do you know utilize effective storytelling to to build a grassroots movement of both volunteers and and donors uh, across the country. And so I think those things paid some great dividends. You know, the, one of the other things that we we really paid attention to was just how do we measure and report out on our outcomes? Um, you know, people aren't investing their hard earned money into us 
you know, through charitable donations because they don't care about what impact it drives. You know, yes, donating feels good and people sometimes do it for that reason, but they're also doing it because they want to create change in the world around them. And so if you're not measuring that change and holding yourself accountable to it um, and then reporting that, you know, that impact back to the donor, then you're doing both a disservice to the donor, but more importantly, you're doing a disservice to the communities you're supposed to be hmm. serving. And so, you know, we were pretty... I would say we're, we were really ruthless in holding ourselves accountable to those outcomes. And you know, frankly, like we didn't always get it right. You know, I, I will tell you that, um, you know, it was a journey to understand the impact that we were having and identifying the impact that I guess, you know, to use a phrase that we were still leaving on the table. Like what was the stuff that we were not accomplishing that we needed to pursue because it was our obligation to to those communities to get it right. And again, that's that's an ever-evolving journey. You're never quite there. If you ever think you're there, then you know you've already lost. <laughs> you've convinced yourself that you're you're doing good enough and you're never doing good enough so long as the problems exist. You know, I've I've talked to man, several several founders over the last year that that kind of transition from, you know, having a, a nonprofit to now, you know, having you know, for-profit companies. And through those conversations, like, wow, like running a nonprofit is also like a great internship to become a, a startup founder in the for-profit side. Because there's so much hard things you have to do to start a nonprofit, but also make it sustainable. There's so many different aspects of it. You know, like you said, I mean, it's not a product, it's, it's sort of an outcome. Fundraising, you still kind of have to do that as a startup founder. It's just you're kind of doing it in a different way. You know, you have to have a good team around you. You know, you have to be efficient. Like there's so many similarities that go into starting, you know, for-profit companies that I've I've really been amazed that everyone I've talked to have they've really built really strong startups so far coming from that nonprofit background. So I just I was like when you said you 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 kind of passed on the the UCLM MBA and you went and started a nonprofit. I was like, you know, I don't know. I think the nonprofit route actually might have been better for <laughs> for your ability yeah, I mean, to, I, I, to learn you know yeah I mean I don't I don't doubt that at all I I you know I I know what you're saying I would <laughs> I would say calling it an internship is a disservice no I'm not, it, I, I mean I was trying to figure out like another word of like it it's a great place to start right like you you, you kind of go through those growing pains in, in a different way but also in a, a very similar way as you would at a, at a company I mean I, I I would argue it's more challenging yeah. than than operating on the for-profit side particularly you know, if you're in a in an industry that can attract you know venture investment, which not every not every you know for profit startup can do that, but you can't get a bank to loan you money. Mm. It's hard to find again venture capitalists that are going to be willing to write you that big check. I, you know, when I was making the leap from Team Rubicon to to what I'm doing now with Groundswell, one of my early investors, Heather Hartnett from Human Ventures, who herself has a nonprofit background, is now and is now a VC. Yeah. She kind of laughed after, uh, you know, she heard me talking about how easy it was to raise money for Groundswell. And she said, now you realize <laughs> That's that hilarious. when you were running a nonprofit, you were running, you were training with ankle weights on. Yeah. So like for any athletes out there that ever trained and put ankle weights on, you know, you know that feeling when you finally take those ankle weights off and you go run, you feel like you're, it's effortless. And that's kind of what running a nonprofit yeah. is. It is harder in almost every respect yeah. <laughs> to run a nonprofit than it is to run a for-profit. I'm going to ask that when I interview my next investor, if they look at, if a person is a non, a successful nonprofit founder, you know, would that go a long way? And maybe they lack some of the other, you know, usual things you might see, you might invest in in a startup founder, if that would be one of the criteria that they look at. Because I think it's just, I don't know, it's an impressive feat. Because like you said, I mean, it's so difficult to, to, to do so successfully. So Groundswell, I love the idea 
and I think it's a growing segment. I guess I'll let you say exactly what it is, but talk about like the idea for Groundswell. When did you know you sort of wanted to make the transition from Team Rubicon to Groundswell? And what was it like, uh, you know, making that decision? Was it difficult or was it sort of just the right time, right place? I knew that it was approaching the time for me to move on uh, as CEO of Team Rubicon. I ran it as CEO for 11 and a half years. And I'm a big believer that organizations have to evolve. And part of that evolution is the the people that are leading them. And it, coupled with the fact that I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur again, I wanted to start something else. And I, you know, I, I never quite knew what it was going to be. Um, and so I was fortunate to have a strong succession plan in place uh, as we came into 2021. And you know, as I watched my family grow and I watched the organization not just survive, but really thrive during COVID, I just knew that the timing was right. And so tapped my longtime friend and, and colleague who was serving as our chief operating officer, Art Dela Cruz, on the shoulder and said, <laughs> hey, it's your turn. Um, and, uh, you know, Art's done a great job of leading the organization for the last two years, which is actually kind of hard to, you know, say out loud that it's been two years. It doesn't seem like that at all. But and then, you know, once I once I made that decision, it was pretty amazing because, you know, despite having known for a long time I wanted to start another company and I, that I was not going to be at Team Rubicon in a full-time capacity forever, you know, I just never gave myself the time and space to think about what that next thing might be. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like cheating, you know, it felt like cheating on my, my partner, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And it was remarkable. As soon as I made the decision, communicated it, I just I just started coming up with all these ideas, and I would spend all night staring at the ceiling, thinking about them. And and one just kept coming back to me, and that was you know what ultimately became Groundswell. And it was obviously running Team Rubicon for over a decade. I, I learned a lot about philanthropy. I think you know in the time that I was a CEO, we raised over three hundred million dollars. The organization's raised four hundred million dollars since inception. So I just, I knew a lot about how philanthropy worked and I knew where it was inefficient and where it could be improved. And so this idea of democratizing philanthropy, giving everyone the tools to make their giving as effective, impactful, and efficient as, you know, the ultra rich was really empowering to me, really inspiring. And so kind of latched onto that idea and, you know, the, the result has been Groundswell, where we've built the world's most modern donor advised fund um, and developed a strategy where we're selling uh, this platform to companies and through it, they are able to make philanthropy and employee benefit that Hmm. provides their employees not only with this donor advised fund that is you know, really powerful yeah. uh, in the financial well-being that it can help unlock for those that are charitable, but also makes matching or giving funds to employees to give away uh, effortless for the company. And so really decentralizing what has historically been a, a centralized corporate decision. You know, the CEO says yeah. she wants to support the Red Cross, so that's what they support. Now decentralizing or democratizing that decision and empowering employees to support what matters most to them is I think the future of where all of this goes. So, you know, we're excited. We've been at it now for a couple of years. Um, The product's been live for a year. Remarkable results from our early customers. And, you know, we think think we're we're onto something. Did you know what donor advised phones, I I guess you were through Team Rubicon, you probably came through your preview before and you kind of knew what they were. But I guess was when you had the idea for Groundswell, was it always going to be around sort of the donor advised funds model? Or, or was that something that kind of came about after the idea was kind of no it, it, it was it was it, yeah it was always focused on the donor advised fund and, and part of that was I was always frustrated that I didn't have a donor advised fund because I'm yeah. not rich 
<laughs> and, you know, it just it, it just blew my mind that in 20, I mean, at the time it was 2021, that in 2021, with all the advances in fintech, mm-hmm. financial technology, that nobody had disrupted DAFs. Like you yep. still had to go to these stodgy old brokerages or wealth yep. management firms and fork over like $10,000, $20,000 yep. to have one open. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. You know, I can, I can Venmo... My the guy that mows my lawn, you know, with a with a smiley face emoji, and he gets the money instantly. But like, if I want to open a donor advised fund, I got to go, you know, to Vanguard or Fidelity and and get the you know the the technology ex- equivalent of a root canal to do it. Like, it just didn't make sense. But I guess when you when you're starting out, right, you you have this sort of idea. You know, it, it's always a beautiful moment. You know, you, you kind of you, you're full of invigoration and energy, and you, and you can't wait to you know sort of get out in the world and do it. But like in the past, you had to go raise money. You know, you had to go through that process. And although it was, it seemed easier right than, than before. What, what was that pro- process like? And what was maybe that first year like as you know, for-profit entrepreneur versus nonprofit? What was that first twelve months like for you? Well, yeah, I was. I think I was really lucky in that through my experience running Team Rubicon, I, I developed a lot of relationships with really great business leaders. And so when I made the decision and I put together the, the plan and the vision for what we were building, you know, it, it only took me a couple phone calls to raise the first couple million bucks. And and I, I realize how fortunate I am in, in having that luxury. Not many people can can do that. It I you know, I think it's a reflection of the way that I'd comported myself over the previous decade. You know, I I I was a serious entrepreneur. I built a serious nonprofit organization. I invested in those relationships. And again, I think they had watched me grow as an entrepreneur running Team Rubicon. They knew that I could lead. They knew I could build a team. They knew that I held myself and my my team accountable to outcomes. I made tough decisions. And, you know, when you're an investor, and you're writing early stage, like seed stage checks to entrepreneurs, you're investing in the person. Yeah. So if you can de-risk that decision by knowing the person, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's hacking the game. So yeah, was really lucky to be able to raise a, a pretty substantial round from, from friends and family. And, you know, these were CEOs and yeah, know, some sure. venture investors. When we went out to go raise our formal round, like our priced round in late 2021, that got a little bit more intense. You know, now you're, you know, you're on phone calls with... Uh, you know, senior, senior partners at some of the most iconic venture firms in Silicon Valley. And uh, yeah, I mean, the heart rate gets going a little bit, but- um, Was the product in the market yet? Or no, we were, we were raising all this money pre-product, Okay, which, you know, you can't do that anymore, right? That was, <laughs> that was 2021. You try to go do, do that today, yeah. you get laughed out of the room. So it's, there was definitely some timing, uh, luck in timing with that. And, you know, you kind of got to make your own luck. I, I can't say I knew that the venture markets were going to dry up in 2022, which of course they did. It's well documented, but you know we we got a little lucky there, but we were able to capitalize on it. So it, yeah, it was it was it was fun. Uh, you know, I think we pitched about you know eight to ten top blue chip VC firms. We got term sheets from I think three of them, and uh, we went with a great great investor, Google Ventures, um, yep. GV as they're known now, led our round and um, you know, really lucky to have them on board for the journey. So the idea is that, you know, a company a company offers this to sort of employees and it's, you know, the employee can let's say, you know, donate donate a hundred bucks to whatever nonprofit and the company would normally sort of match it, kind of like a four oh one K, but for philanthropy, is that sort of a elementary model or the elementary way of looking at it? Yeah, I, I think 
thinking of it like an HSA or a 401k for mm-hmm. charity is pretty um, appropriate. You know, it's a tax advantage giving account. So it's every, each employee is getting their own donor advised fund. This isn't like mm-hmm. a they're getting an actual DAF. And, you know, which means that when they put money into their DAF, either, you know, they can do a payroll deduction, they can contribute stock and avoid capital gains taxes. Our platform then automates that company's match if they if they're running one directly into that donor advised fund that the employee controls. So now they get, they can control all the money. They can send it wherever, whenever they want to charity. They can take it with them if they leave the company, just mm. like a, a 401k. So gotcha. really just rethinking employee giving, because again, it hadn't really evolved over the previous 20 years. Was that sort of the, look, when you're building on a platform, right, you have this one idea and it's a really powerful idea. Obviously it can scale across any size company. At what point do you look at building out the product, building out like features? Two years now, was it is it difficult to kind of add these different things? Because now you have like, well, it's volunteering, corporate grants, employee experiences. Like there, there starts to be this this platform now that gets sort of bigger and bigger. Like how do you how do you assess adding, let's say, new features? That that sort of welcomes this because the idea is amazing and that could scale on its own. How do you choose to to build out new features? you know, for, for Groundswell and, and for the product line? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got, you know, we've got a, a list of features we want to build. It's as long as my arm. Um, so, um, you know, there's no shortage of ideas. And I think we've got a lot of ideas on our, our product roadmap that are really innovative and that we're really excited to build. You know, ultimately we're listening to customers. You know, we, we know that there are some things that our platform currently lacks that some of the legacy competitors have and and some of those things are things that we never intend to build because we think that they're mm, nothing more than yeah. you know dog and pony shows for mm-hmm. the purposes of demos and and they lack impact in utilization. There are other things that we know we're going to have to build and it's just a matter of time. So it's a balance of prioritizing some of those kind of feature parity decisions, like hey, we kind of have to do this because all the competitors have it, uh-huh. and balancing that against some of the net new stuff that's really exciting that could be highly differentiating for us, but you kind of got to earn the right to build those. So that's a constant balance. Uh, again, it, it really comes down to listening to our customers, being diligent about analyzing why you're losing deals. Um, so what are we consistently losing for? Is it because we lack X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. Hey, well, now we, we can't afford to lose these deals. So we got to go build X, Y, and Z. And the last thing I'll say is it's just, it's a world full of trade-offs. So everything you say yes to is a no to something else. And, yeah. and that's challenging. I mean, as a CEO, I want to say yes to, you know, a lot more than we're currently saying yes to. And we're just constrained by uh, the limitations of our team. I'll end on a couple questions here. The, the first will be, uh, the business model. Is it sort of a annual fee for, for the business? Is it, you know, the business pays per employee? I guess, how does that work from, you know, a small business perspective, you know, versus a Fortune 500 company? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an enterprise business play. So we we charge our customers annual fees based off number of eligible employees, which, you know, is a great model. There's some additional uh, monetization levers that we're pulling, which is great. It just kind of juices, juices revenue. But um yeah, it's it's mostly enterprise um, SaaS revenue. Last question I'll have is is a little bit on the on the future, and I know you know coming out of you know Team Rubicon and you know building that up and and you know spending over a decade of your life in it, you know it's such a it's such a great thing to look back on and, and build something successful. And I think the greatest thing a CEO an entrepreneur can do is leave it behind and have it 
thrive without them there, right? That I mean, that is such a, it's like a kid, you know, going off and, and, and doing its own thing and being successful. It's like, wow, it's such a proud thing. And now you look at sort of groundswell and probably going to be, you know, the next decade of your life, let's say. But what does that look, next decade look like? Maybe even three to five years? You know, what, what does the future look like? What are some of the goals and successes you and the team would like to achieve? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to think in terms of decades right now when you're you're hooking and jabbing for the next ten months. Sure. Um, you know, it's a tough economic environment and nothing's certain. So, you know, I, I have the team laser focused on the next year. Um, there's some targets that we have to hit uh, so that we can raise our next round of financing, and we just have to be ruthless in the pursuit of those objectives for the next year. I, I think, but you know, zooming out, we're a mission driven company, and and people are here because we are trying to create lasting change. We're trying to create a paradigm shift in corporate philanthropy. And so as we think about, you know, what does success look like? You know, I would love for donor advised funds to be Mm. as ubiquitous in the future as a 401k is today. When you, when you look at the donor, when you look at the 401k, it was introduced in 1980 and it only took three or four years for it to eclipse 10 million accounts in the U S and now today, I mean, you can't, you can't put a, a, a job offer in front of somebody for you know, a white collar opportunity without access to a 401k, it would be unheard of. Like you, you can't sure. possibly do that. You wouldn't, you would not be competitive. And, you know, we want to, we want to get there. Um, and in fact, push it even further. We want, you know, tax advantage giving accounts to be offered to employees at any wage level because 73% of American households give to charity every year. Hmm. It doesn't matter how much money you're making. The odds are three out of four households, three out of four of your employees are given to charity. How can you help them do that yeah. more efficiently? Um, and, and that's the future that we want to see. Well, thanks so much, Jake, for taking the time, man. I, I know you're super busy. I know you're building a lot of stuff. Um, always appreciative when, when people take time out their day to kind of talk about what they're working on, what they're building, you know, specifically this case with their disrupting. It, it's pretty incredible, man, what you've done so far in life and, and best of luck for next decade to come. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me come on and share the story. We love telling the story of Groundswell and Team Rubicon. So anytime, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> <laughs>